0: In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Listen to my prayer, O God. Do not ignore my plea.
1: Hear me and answer me. Evening, morning, and noon. I cry out in distress, and he hears my voice. Cast your cares on the Lord, and he will sustain you. He will never let the righteous fall. Glory Glory be to to the the Father, and to to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be
0: forever. Amen thank you for joining us today as we uh, look ahead to the second Sunday in Advent. Our apologies on the forefront. Both Paul and I contracted colds over Thanksgiving, um, feeling overall okay, but we do not sound all that great. So we've messed with the sound a little bit to try and take the edge off the crackle, but we're both singing much lower than we normally do. So uh, please bear with us, and we apologize in advance for any sniffles, coughs, or Other sounds that you hear that aren't normally part of the podcast. But as we look ahead to Advent 2, we continue this um, move towards Christmas. Last week we had the triumphal entry with Jesus coming into Jerusalem, the reminder of why he's coming in the first place. And now we get two weeks of John the Baptist. So the next two weeks we hear John the Baptist preparing the way, talking about the coming of Christ. And growing up uh, just as a way that i sorted it out of my brain because we always celebrate advent into christmas in this way i always pictured john the baptist as preaching prior to jesus birth and it wasn't until i think i was in seminary before i finally all came together for me that wait a minute mary hears that she is pregnant and goes to visit elizabeth and john the baptist is in the womb and leaps at that point and then John baptizes Jesus shortly, or right as Jesus' ministry is beginning, that John and the Baptist and Jesus are only about six months apart in age. They're cousins who grew up together. But because we hear the John the Baptist readings prior to Jesus' birth, it's easy for us to forget that they are not only cousins, but cousins who are within six months of age from one another. Could be as close as three months uh, difference between them which is also an interesting thing to think that they grew up together, that if Mary goes to see Elizabeth when she's pregnant, John the Baptist and Jesus would have ran into each other at family functions, at major family events, maybe spent holiday celebrations together, traveled to Jerusalem within their family groups together. So they know who one another is, and when Jesus goes to see John the Baptist for his baptism later on, John, it's not the first time they've met. They've got a long family history together. But that's all happening within the gospel readings. We're going to focus in on our uh, epistle reading for next week, which is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 2 through 11.
1: It's not Philippians?
0: Oh yes, it is Philippians. (laughs) Apparently my cold is also affecting my eyesight. (laughs) It is Philippians, chapter 1, verses 2 through 11. I have no idea where I came up with Ephesians in that.
1: Um, well, we had done a long, long series out of Ephesians, but why, why do you think they chose Philippians for, uh, for pairing with these these uh, two weeks for John, uh, John the Baptist?
0: If I had to guess, and I'm not entirely certain as to why they choose Philippians, I would think that it has to do with, Paul's going to emphasize uh, partnership in the preaching of the gospel, People working together to do this um, which is how we can look at John the Baptist there's a lot of conversation about being witnesses for what the other person is teaching and um, also the purpose for why Jesus is coming and so Philippians does a nice job of laying those things out and, and in that way ties to what's happening with John the Baptist as well that's I think that's a good theory So, with that in mind, could you read for us, please,
1: chapter 1, verse 2. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you. So this is a
0: standard greeting for any of Paul's letters. It's familiar to us, grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. It's how sermons begin. So if you've listened to a Lutheran preacher, Uh, on a Sunday morning, sermons begin and end pretty much the same way. Um, They begin, grace and peace to you from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and end with um, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ um, be with you always. Amen. And this is taking text right out of what Paul does to show that sermons, while not the same in authority, are in the same vein and line as with the letters that Paul writes to a congregation. They're intended to be the word of God and its explanation for a particular group of people dealing with a particular set of things on a particular time of the year. So when Paul writes his letters, he's not writing them just for the fun of it. He's writing them because he has a purpose in mind. And so for the Philippians, this letter seems to be more than anything a thank you note, a long thank you letter that includes words of encouragement uh, for the congregation as they are beginning to face persecution as well. But there is a sequence to the way he does this. Grace is followed by peace. Grace to you and peace from from God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is followed by peace. Grace is given to God's people, followed by the peace that comes from uh, being reconciled with God. And grace is kind of the definition of God's act toward His people, and peace is the totality of its result. So grace is always followed by peace because grace is a move of reconciliation.
1: There, am I mistaken, or, or sometimes mercy is thrown in there too? It's grace, mercy, and peace. Right,
0: and every now and again you see grace, mercy, and peace. And, and I think that's how I start my sermons: grace, mercy, and peace to you from our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ.
1: And that's and that's from a different letter, a different yeah. epistle. Yes. So so Paul is
0: making his own variations. Right, he, his he has his own variety within this. And it's not uncommon for us to tie grace and mercy together. If I had to guess as to why he doesn't include mercy here, it's because mercy, grace is the giving of gifts that have not been earned. Mercy is the withholding of punishment that has been earned. And because of the nature of Philippians, where he's not trying to correct major false theology issues, dealing with significant sins like he does with the Corinthians. He's primarily thanking and encouraging. Grace becomes the predominant theme here as opposed to mercy because there is less of the emphasis on the withholding of punishment.
1: Mm-hmm. And that continues in the rest of it, which which I'll, I'll, I'll bring up later as we, right. as we move farther into this reading.
0: Yes, and so could you read for us verses 3 through 8?
1: For God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So when we read this, you've read
0: four different sentences. When Paul wrote it, he only wrote one. I've mentioned this before. Paul has never met a punctuation mark that he liked. He just liked really long sentences, and this is one of those notoriously long and complex sentences. English gives us Four sentences, he gives us one. Why does he do that? Well, all of this is tied together. It's all flowing from one common idea. And he begins by positing this idea as he is praying for his friends. And he does so often. And the motivation for that prayer is thanksgiving, that they are partners in the gospel, that they continue in their faithfulness. That they encourage him during a difficult time, and later on in the text that we won't read, um, he indicates that they also support him financially.
1: And that, and that's somewhere in the following. Yeah, verses. in the okay. well,
0: in the later chapters of Philippians, that they are likely helping pay for his imprisonment because one of the unique facets of Roman imprisonment was your family was responsible for covering your costs. So if people didn't pay for your food, you didn't get much to eat. And so Paul, as a prisoner in Rome, would have relied on the Christian churches to make certain that he had clothes and food and things like that. And they rallied around him to provide those things. So as we're looking at this, that becomes the encouragement that he gives in the difficult time. That he is in prison... And they and Philippi are starting to face persecution. Philippi, the town in which the church is located, is a very intentionally Roman town. It's established as a way to reward men who fulfilled valiant military service for the Roman Empire. So it had been the custom that the Roman emperors, after a major battle or after a major war, would grant citizenships to the soldiers who had been fighting, giving them a piece of land, and often they did this in and around Rome. Well, about 40 years before Christ was born, the decision was made let's give the land in the farther parts of the empire away. That way we can have Roman strongholds, not just around the city of the major city of the empire of Rome, but also in the far flung areas so that we can increase loyalty. And patriotism in the areas that are harder to hold on to. (coughs) So Philippi becomes one of those cities and it is filled primarily with Roman citizens which means that the primary god of that place is going to be the worship of the Emperor and the Roman gods. So the Christians who start to uh, create a Christian church here, there doesn't even seem to be a very big Jewish presence prior to their arrival because they're worshiping on a riverbank not inside of a synagogue as would have been the uh, case with the rest of the early churches is they're at odds with the rest of the citizenry there because they are doing something that would run contrary to the patriotic move of supporting the emperor and the emperor alone but it as best as we can piece together from paul's writings and a few other things this the church in philippi is started by a group of women um, some of them quite wealthy they meet on the riverbank of a church, and they are incredibly faithful and face very early and frequent persecution because they are so outside of the
1: normal activity for the rest of the people in their town. So this um community there is—it's—it has that same mindset as the people of Rome would have had. It's—it's it's almost like a like a veterans' home or veterans' community if you want right. to look at it that way.
0: Yes, and. Um, probably much more homogenous in nature than what Rome was because Rome is very much a metropolitan city. There's all kinds of different types of people. There's a lot of diversity. There's a huge Jewish community. Um, Rome would would have been think like New York or um, London or Paris that kind of a, a status city
1: because it was the head of the empire I mean all right. all, all, all roads lead to Rome all, loads, all roads yeah. lead to Rome right and so all all those different ethnicities would have been represented there Philippi was not a not a trading city was it so not really it's it's a military city right right so it had that kind of <coughs> special status so it didn't didn't have that that influence of, of from outside right. groups unlike other Greek cities, that maybe they were trading cities and and had that. uh... And the city, when the Romans
0: decided to use it as a, a place to reward veterans, wasn't much of a city. It kind of collapsed in on itself just because of the nature of where it was located, but it was of strategic military importance. So Rome wanted there to be a town there. It was intentional that the empire said, there needs to be a town here. And so when they move all of the veterans in and all the Roman citizens in, it's not like they're mingling with that many people who were there before them. It's pretty much just Roman citizens who are <clears throat> military veterans, and that creates a very unique kind of socioeconomic situation that makes Philippi different from the rest of the cities in the area.
1: And I would think ministry would have been tough there because they would have been loyal, as you said, to the emperor's right. religion.
0: incredibly loyal to the emperor the advantage Paul has is Paul is a Roman citizen, likely the son or grandson of somebody who receives citizenship through military service. So he can very much speak the language Mm -hmm. of the people who are in the city. So he also calls them partakers in the grace of God. And because they are partakers with him in the grace of God. He yearns for them with all the affection of Jesus Christ. And what he's trying to illustrate to them there is that in the same way that God was willing to give up everything for the sake of their salvation, Paul has that same sort of response of love and compassion for those people. Um, he, He recognizes them as brothers and sisters in Christ, wants them to know that, and wants them to receive all the gifts that that brings. Would you read for us please verses 9 through 11
1: and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through jesus christ to the glory and praise of god
0: we now learn the content of the prayer that paul makes on behalf of the philippians we know why he prayed. Now we know how he's or what he's praying for. First, that love would abound; they would learn to sacrifice and live Christ-like lives. That, and I think it's a beautiful how he phrases that. My prayer that your your love may abound more and more. That how are they to be known in the community? Well, as people who sacrifice for one another. And that's what he's getting at here: is the sacrifice. As Christ has done this for you, you should now do for one another. And that they would do so with knowledge and discernment. Interestingly, this is the only time the word discernment is used in the New Testament. Um, Knowledge is used in several different places, but discernment only comes up here. And what we believe he's trying to get at here is that you get to know one another better and better through your love, so much so that you can anticipate what the other needs. And I think we see this happen a lot with couples who've been married for a long time, where you'll see one of them just get up and do something for the other one, and the other one didn't even need to ask for it. It's just they know each other so well that they can anticipate what the other one needs, perhaps even before the other one knows that they need it. And this is the kind of love that Paul is instructing them to have. Get to know your neighbors so well that you can make decisions about what they need
1: and anticipate what they need even before they might know that they need it. And on a wider social um, plane, I, I, I took that to mean you're, you're, you're reading their situations better, that right. you're picking up on the cues, like this would be an appropriate thing to say to them or yeah. s- offer to them <clears throat> in, in this particular situation, that as you, as you grow as a person, you're, you, you better pick up on those things.
0: Right, yeah, that you need to be a student of people, um, reading them, understanding them, and doing so not so that you can come out having an advantage over them,
1: but so that you can be of better service to them. What, what I came away with from this whole passage is, is that it's just amazingly optimistic. Yeah. Even though he's talking about uh, his imprisonment and and the challenges of the gospel, the whole thing is just very sunny in terms of his optimism of of, of course we're gonna do this. And you're already doing this, and right. you're gonna do it that much more, you're gonna do it that right. much better going forward. And that's what I keep praying for. I mean, there's there's just unbounded optimism through right. this whole passage. Yes. Contrary to some of his other letters where he comes right. out swearing. Very stern and very dark.
0: Yeah. And so this is a congregation that he's very proud of, very thankful for, and that he loves being able to serve. And the whole motivation for this is found in verse 11. Filled that you'd be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So who benefits from this service? Who benefits from you getting to know your neighbor and engaging in such sacrificial love? Well, there's two people that benefit your neighbor, because they're receiving those gifts, and God, because you point to him to receive all the glory of, well, why do you do this? Well, because God has first done it for me. It's like I mentioned in the sermon on Sunday, that um, the beauty of our understanding of justice is that we don't need to worry about finding revenge or restoring equilibrium. We know that God's got it under control. And so we can just focus on sharing love with our neighbor and not have to worry about accumulating enough good things to outdo the bad that we've done, because Christ has already done more than enough of that for us.
1: And, and fundamentally that we are created to glorify God. And it reminds me of that Latin expression that uh, that that Bach would always would inscribe on his manuscripts, it's solely Deo Gloria, to God alone be the glory. That right. as, as his humble servants, it all, redounds to the glory of god right. everything that we do to our neighbor yes
0: everything god. we do is for the glory of god and it's just a beautiful way to think about what is our motivation for doing all that we do as christians to show god glory
1: as pastor mentioned these uh, next two weeks in the church here the second and third sundays of advent we hear the readings about john the baptist and there are a, a lot of our Advent hymns mention John the Baptist. And today we're gonna focus in on one that uh, bears the title, Hark, a Thrilling Voice is Sounding. Which I I, love that you picked this one on the day that our voices sound anything but thrilling. (laughs) Um, Well, I've got a humorous anecdote to go along with that. Um, If you're following along in the hymnal, it is uh, hymn number 345, 345, and um, if you have one of the old hymnals, it's, it's number 60 in that hymnal, but I believe the translation has been somewhat updated and altered in that one, so it may not follow exactly. Let's start with the, the text of this particular hymn. Uh, its authorship is uncertain. Uh, some have thought perhaps Ambrose uh, uh, of Milan was the author, but there's no proof to that. It's a possibility, but we don't know that for sure. We do know that it was used rather widely in the Middle Ages and it was appointed for for use in lauds, that is the daily service for every day in Advent. So it was such a a treasured and widely used one that that it was sung every day in those services during the season of Advent. Uh, So it, it comes to us from the original Latin. It was originally written in Latin And the translation we are using is by uh, Edward Caswell, a a 19th century um, translator who um, is second only to John Mason Neal in terms of the number and quality of translations from Latin hymns that have come forward to us from history. Um, He, um, later in life, converted to Catholicism. He was one of those who started out in the Church of England and converted to Catholicism. So it is his translation that we use largely for the version that appears in our hymnal, again, at, uh, at number 345. What is kind of humorous about this is that um, the first line of, of Caswell's original, original translation read, Hark, an awful voice is sounding, which would pertain to us the two of us today certainly right and it's just another example of how the english language has changed over time how something that we would describe as awful is not bad but but as we would perceive it now but it's just something that is it's maybe shocking or something that it striking awe, awe. yeah filled with awe yes even the word awesome has changed in in terms of how we use it right um yeah the first time i encountered
0: that was in the evening hymn, um, I'll praise to thee, my God, this night. It has the line um, that we may... um, Oh, I'm forgetting. But it refers to on that awful day. And it's referring to the last day. And it's not awful in the sense that it's a a horrible day, but it's a day filled with awe.
1: Right. And in the same sense, yeah, when that final day comes. Right. This voice fills you with awe, like that final day would fill you with awe. And so in that in that whole first line, uh, there's a little bit of a change there. It starts out um, originally, his translation was, hark, an awful voice is sounding. We've changed that to hark, a thrilling voice is sounding, which certainly doesn't quite capture the same meaning. Um, but yet, it gets us away from that idea that it's a terrible right. thing, right? Um, a frightening thing, perhaps. And then even the second phrase um, was was changed. Originally it read, Christ is nigh, it seems to say. Now we sing, Christ is near, we hear it say. So um, I think there's a little bit of ambiguity in that first one. Uh, Christ is near, it, it seems to say. Well, no, no, we're pretty sure right, that's what yeah. it's about. John's so, very clear that that's what it's about. And, and there are some other phrases in the hymn that were... Um, were updated in that same way, just to make it a little bit clearer for what our, our modern English, um, uh, our modern understanding of, of, of the words would mean. And, and that's, a, that's a good thing, unless of course you've memorized the poetry and then you, you stumble right. upon it. But, well, and looking
0: at the text,
1: I think this one,
0: perhaps more than most hymns, if you can sing the punctuation It just makes this hymn come alive. I had never realized that until I sang it in choir. And I think just because of the nature of how we sing things, in congregational sense, we tend to be pretty lazy singers. We just kind of run it all together, breathe wherever we want to. Well, for a hymn like this, where it's very clearly punctuated, taking the time to put those spaces in brings the hymn to life. Even when we announce the title, we say, Hark a Thrilling Voices, Calling as if that's one long sentence, but it's punctuated to say, Hark, the whole look, listen, a thrilling voice is calling. It's two different sentences. So we can get, Hark, a thrilling voice is calling, Christ is near, we hear it say, which is different than, Hark, a thrilling voice is. It just brings it to life and adds so much more excitement to that. And this hymn does that three different times out of the five verses, we get, hark, a thrilling voice is calling, see, look, a lamb, so long expected. So, when next, he comes in glory. And so we get these moments of pause after that opening note to try and draw our attention to highlight what's coming
1: next. But if the poetry is crafted carefully, I think that that lines up very well with the music and it and does why, with this tune and that's why choice of music is important and so um next i'll turn my attention to the, the the tune and the music for this one in in our current hymnal the tune is one with the tune named merton which was written uh in the mid 19th century around um i think it was first published around 1850 so it's it's contemporaneous to the translation that we have here as well. The two were paired together. And it's named Merton, either after Merton College or Merton Parish, one of the two in England, but it's one of those hymns that has a place name. And it was written by, by William Henry Monk. And if I could refresh your memory on that one, he has three, he has three tunes in the hymnal. You're just pulling your mic down.
0: Sorry about that, Paul caught his mic cord and pulled his mic
1: off of his collar. That's why you couldn't hear him so well. Okay, I'll take a step back for a second. The, the composer of the tune is, is, is William Henry Monk, and um, he wrote three hymn tunes in our hymnal. The other two are, are, are much more well known to us, um, and those being um, Energy, which is the tune for We Give Thee But Thine Own. And the other one is eventide which is the tune for abide with me so those two plus this this merton are his three contributions well, i would
0: say had. he was very successful then in in tune writing
1: very much so um an accomplished church musician hymnologist composer and his probably his largest claim to fame was he was the editor of <clears throat> excuse me a series of hymnals called Hymns Ancient and Modern. And those hymnals really set the standard for English language hymnals in the 19th century, just because of the diversity of the, of the, and quality of the hymns that were selected for it, the pairing of the tunes and the text, just the quality of the work that was done with that really set a high standard for, for hymnals that came after that. And are
0: those still in use today? Because I feel like I'm familiar with that title.
1: Um, just probably because it was such a monumental collection of hymns. Um, the Church of England, they've, um, I, I, there, there's probably pockets where those still are used uh, to this day, later editions of it, of course. But um, uh, they certainly set the standard for, for later hymnals and, and um, carried forward a lot of the same hymns from, from that collection. So let's, let's take a look at the, at the different tunes that we have associated with this particular text. And it might be best maybe to begin with the one that was not our, our old hymnal, perhaps? Yes. Um, I'll play through that when I'm sitting, seated here at the piano. Um, since our voices aren't real, in real high form today, I'll play it through on the piano. But this is the tune that was uh, number 60 in the old TLH. And, and you can judge for yourself whether you think it's a, it's a, it, it assists the text in proclaiming the message or detracts from it. kind of a dark tune and, and in that way, it kind of is a, um, a, you know, a solemn warning mm-hmm. as, as the text says. So it well, fits it, in that regard. And
0: from a time when Advent was more somber, more Lent-like, it did fit the nature of that season, but just trying to put it with the text, it takes away some of that sense of being thrilling and it does make it sound more awful. Um, <laughs>
1: awful, yes. Yeah, not. It
0: has that dark foreboding nature to it, as opposed to the way we tend to think about Christ coming now, especially with Christmas, as being this very joy-filled event. And as Paul and I were talking beforehand, that's actually the tune I remember from my childhood. Um, I grew up in a congregation that did not use TLH, but used Lutheran worship or the blue hymnal, as many people would know it, so TLH being the red hymnal. I grew up in a congregation with a blue hymnal, which had an entirely different tune altogether, which Paul's going to play next. But I remember singing the red hymnal tune, so our congregation must have favored that one over what was added for Lutheran worship.
1: And I I think for, for our purposes here, I may skip over the, the version that that um, appeared in LW. Given that our congregation never purchased that hymnal, it would be largely unknown to and our congregation. It's not a
0: terribly inspired tune when it comes to this text.
1: Um, I would I would agree. It's 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 not a terrible fit, but but um, uh, I think there's better choices. And one of those better choices is this tune by by Monk. And um, it was it's one from that comes from that same period as as the uh, translation of the text. A lot of, there's a lot to like about it. Um, first of all, it begins with that that triad, the 1st, 3rd, and 5th scale degrees. We have a lot of hymn tunes that begin that way. And when you're thinking about, um, um, like, uh, Wake Awake, same thing. Wake awake, for night is flying. It's that same kind of a theme that, you know, wake up, hark. You know, mm-hmm. here's, here's the message coming. Um, and so it, it carries that same character to it. Um,
0: and in our Western ear, that one, three, five chord is a, always a
1: very pleasant sound. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Very easy to sing, very approachable. Um, the, whole, the whole tune is. So um, perhaps, um, how many stanzas would we like to sing in this one? It's, it's fairly short. It
0: is fairly short. I tend to really like verses one, three, and five, um,
1: if we can get through them sure i think we can manage that and uh stanza five as is often the case is a doxological stanza um the the nice thing about this hymn is it uh for this time of year it still has echoes of the end times and i don't know if you picked up on that um stanza four in fact so when next he comes in glory and the world is wrapped in fear well there's that awful day um, uh, notion again that um, um, we're always kind of living. We're living in those end times.
0: Well, and I think that's one of the beauty of this hymn. The Poetry is so strong in moving you from verse to verse because we begin the first verse by saying, hark, look, behold, hark, a thrilling voice is sounding. The second verse, which we're not going to sing today, begins with startled at the solemn morning. So you got people's attention. It scared them, startled them. Now what's going to be the response? And then you keep moving through this, building it, all the way through to this final doxological moment so we get the call to attention what happens when you're woke up what do you see once you're awake what's the purpose of christ coming and what becomes our response is the way that this hymn builds
1: mm-hmm. and it and it uh, survived the translation from the latin i think very well right a very very skillful translation so yeah, let's 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 go ahead and sing stanzas one, three, and five of this one.
0: Hark! A thrilling voice is sounding. Christ is near. We hear it say, "Cast away the works of
1: darkness." all you children of the day. See, the Lamb so long
0: expected comes with pardon from them. Let us haste with tears of sorrow one and all to be forgiven our glory, I dominion to the Father and the Son, with the ever-living Spirit, while eternal ages run. Singing it makes me look forward very much to, to Sunday, to being able to sing it in its entirety. It's a, one of the beautiful hymns of Advent. Let us pray.
1: O Lord, have mercy upon us. O Christ, have mercy upon us. O Lord, have mercy upon us. Our, our Father, Father, who art
0: Lord in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy, thy will, will be done, done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Blessed Lord Jesus Christ, at this hour you hung upon the cross, stretching out your loving arms to embrace the world in your death. Grant that all people of the earth may look forward to you and to see their salvation. For your mercy's sake, we pray. Amen.
1: Please join us for worship this weekend. Our worship opportunities are at 8 a.m. and 10.30 a.m. on Sunday, and on Mondays at 6.30 p.m.